Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The National Defense Authorization Act, which Congress finished just days ago, moves the marker on several matters peripherally connected to the armed forces, but also in some big defense areas. Covington and Burling attorneys Alex Hastings and Michelle Pierce join me now with their latest analysis. Michelle, good to have you back. Thanks. It's great to be back. Nice to see you. And Alex, good to have you in studio as well. Great to be with you. Let's start with the big picture here, because there's a lot of specific provisions throughout this bill. But what fundamentally is Congress and the national security establishment, which informs much of what happens in the NDAA, what are they all saying with this year's bill? Michelle? There is a lot going on in this bill. As I look at the bill, there are some themes that kind of emerge in terms of national security. One theme is it is absolutely critical for our national security agencies to be working more closely and in partnership with industry and private sector partners. So you'll see a lot of provisions in this year's bill that enforce this concept that you cannot, as a government official, a government agency, do your job on some of these really challenging issues and achieve your mission without reaching out to industry and finding ways to partner. So the concept of public-private partnerships are incredibly important in this bill. And you'll see a lot of provisions that either provide for a mandate to establish a public-private partnership in a certain sector or alternatively demand that the executive branch develop a strategy that incorporates private industry partnerships. All right, Alex, you're the contracting attorney specialist on this side of the equation, if we call Michelle the sort of the military analyst with her army background. What does this all mean? What should contractors understand about this bill then? So Michelle is right that there is a lot of opportunity here for public-private collaboration with the government, whether it's supply chain or AI. There were, you know, there were, we, we heard a lot of opportunities or a lot of places where the, you know, Congress had rigorous debate about some of the provisions in the bill. But what we didn't hear a lot about is a lot of places where Congress agreed on issues, whether it was supply chain vulnerabilities when it came to China and Russia, or whether it was the need to assess opportunities for AI when it comes to DOD applications. These are areas where I think contractors have a lot of opportunity to work with um, counterparts in the DOD, whether it's a public-private partnership, whether it's working with DOD on um, you know a, a series of reporting obligations that the NDAA is going to impose on DOD to try to either bolster the supply chain or incorporate artificial intelligence. So there's a lot of opportunities here, I think, for contractors to get involved um, in, in many of these issues. And there is a specific theme of Pacific deterrence initiatives, but that also takes place elsewhere in the NDAA. For example, I thought fairly significant provision you can't do business with DOD if in the past five years you've done business with China. And I don't know how many defense contractors that actually affects, but it's kind of a maybe more of a notice to other companies, take your pick. Yes. And there's a series of those restrictions in the NDAA. So there's a there's broad restrictions like that. There's also more specific restrictions that relate to batteries or critical minerals. It really is it's a uh, sort of a warning sign, a warning shot to contractors to look critically both at their supply chains and at their at who they do 
business with and their ownership structures to ensure that you know foreign influence in their um, in their structure and in their business partners are identified to make sure that you know as these restrictions continue uh, to increase that they're they're aware of them and track them closely. We're speaking with Alex Hastings and Michelle Pierce. They specialize in defense issues at the law firm Covington and Burling. But the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, that is a specific program. The Pacific Deterrence Initiative is a program associated with funding in which we provide not just military support and certainly we allow our military to partner with and then exercise and conduct operations with other friends and allies in the region, it's a stream of secure funding such that those partners can rely on those authorities and that funding as it operates in all those locations jointly and cooperatively with the United States. Got it. In other words, we can have subs and exercises and all kinds of stuff close to China, whether they like it or not. We can train with other militaries, certainly, in that region. And a former uh, chief of naval operations used to say, You know, the tyranny of distance in the Pacific is so incredibly great that if we don't have those types of relationships with our allies and partners in that theater of operations, we simply are not going to be able to do our jobs. Okay. And on that idea of public-private partnerships, Alex, I mean, that's an old idea. They've been talking about that for 50 years. What's different now, do you think, under the NDAA? And are there specific provisions to streamline the inculcation of new technology? Again, something DOD leadership has been talking about for 10 years now. How can we get these faster to deployment, just to simplify it? Yeah, no, it's a good point. Public-private partnerships are nothing new, but I think the emphasis on them and the tools available for contractors and the DOD community um, are new. So, for instance, there's a provision in the NDAA that encourages public-private partnerships for rare earth elements. I mean, rare earth elements right now are coming from Russia and China by and large, and they need to be near-shored or friend-shored or domestically sourced. And the NDAA directs DOD to look for rare earth, look for partners who can help source rare earth elements from more friendly sources. So that's a direction that I think hopefully DOD will start to implement. In terms of tools, um, we see what we didn't have, as you said, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, was the other contracting authorities. This NDAA does a lot when it comes to OTAs, CRADAs, and others, other uh, contracting authorities like that, which I think really help public-private partnerships that won't fit in a traditional far-covered contract. help those uh, partnerships flourish and really get off the ground. Are these all in the 800 series of provisions, the OTA, et cetera? It it expands them to more... It expands them to other opportunities. It does. The NDAA also, I mean, Congress gives and Congress takes. So it also imposes additional oversight authority over OTAs, uh, suggests that, you know, there needs to be more performance reviews for OTA recipients and that sort of thing. So we're going to see more oversight of these non-traditional agreements. There's a lot of money flowing through them right now for contracts. Contractors, but there's also more procurement authority there as well. And finally, what about just the basic units of end strength? What does it say about the size of the Army, Navy, Air Force, and shipbuilding, which the Navy has all these multiple plans they would like to pick one and pursue? The critical question with respect to shipbuilding is, do we have enough ships to execute the Navy's mission? There is widespread disagreement on that, but I think, in my view, you know, reassessing 
based on military operations, both in the Indo-Pacific and certainly in the Middle East right now, is critically important. You know, we should always be reassessing and reviewing those plans and those numbers of ships and capabilities related to those ships and what they deliver. Um, separately, I also think that as we look forward to, you know, what are we going to anticipate in the coming months in terms of Congress, you're going to see continued emphasis on all of these priorities that we've outlined in this year's bill. We are going to see continued scrutiny of sourcing material supplies, um, the numbers of ships, because we, we don't have enough ships right now to execute you know, missions continuously all around the world. We need more. Um, and in terms of other just mission-critical capabilities related to critical minerals and other supplies, we don't have enough of those. So ensuring that we have a strong defense industrial base is a key objective, not just of the Department of Defense national and national security strategies, but generally speaking, you know, it will remain a, a significant item of interest in the next Congress, both from Democrats and from Republicans. There are hardware dollars, though, in that $888 billion. There's plenty to buy stuff at this point. Sure. But how you prioritize those dollars, sometimes there's agreement with the administration and sometimes there is disagreement. And ultimately, in as I have seen the process play out from both working on the defense authorization committees and appropriations committees, we tend to come to compromises and agreement, even when it doesn't appear that that is likely to happen. And we typically work very closely together to get those differences resolved in order to get the bills passed. And if we could just build an aircraft carrier in two years, we'd really be on top of things, huh? That would be remarkable. Michelle Pierce and Alex Hastings are attorneys with Covington and Burling. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to be here. Thanks so much. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's. Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day.
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.